Well, good morning, everybody. What's better than watching a kid get baptized by his dad? Isn't that amazing? Love that. Yeah, you got the glory. So if you are visiting with us today, we just want to say welcome. We are in the middle of this series, but don't worry about it. It's not like everything you missed is going to keep you from understanding what I'm talking about. But I do need to bring you up to speed a little bit. So we've been looking at the story of the Israelites and their journey out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. This journey actually begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. You may not know that. God goes to a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many. In fact, he takes him outside. He says, see those stars in the sky? You're going to have so many kids, it could be more than the stars in the sky. He takes him at one point to the sand on the shore. Look at all the sand on the shore. It's going to be more than all the sands on the shore. Now, the problem is Abraham and his wife are much older in years, and they have no kids. And so Abraham's like, sure, why not? You're God. And so over time, what happens is Abraham finally has a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name, in case you didn't know this, gets changed to Israel, meaning one who wrestles with God. And Israel or Jacob, ends up having 12 sons, along with some daughters. Now, the word Genesis ends, um, the Israelites, the sons, the tribes of Jacob, are living in Egypt because of a great famine that has occurred. It's an amazing story. But as that Genesis, as Genesis closes out, we have Joseph literally telling his family to make sure that when God leads you out of this land in Egypt, that you bring my bones with you. Because Joseph is going all the way back to the promise given to Abraham, and he's saying, I believe that God is still going to take us into that promised land. So when God made this promise to Abraham, he showed him the land of Canaan, or what many, now we see the Israelites and the Arabs fighting over in the Middle East today. It's this promised land that was going to happen. So where the book of Exodus picks up, we are... 400 plus odd years into the future, and we find the Israelites are in Egypt, and they've been slaves for quite some time. God raises up Moses, and Moses leads the Israelites uh, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He ends up doing these miracles all over the place that puts God's might on display. Now, what's going on in Egypt is there's a king. We call him a pharaoh. You've probably heard that phrase before, but in essence, he's a king. The difference between a pharaoh and a king is not only is he the ruler of the land, but pharaoh is actually worshipped as a god incarnate, meaning he's God on earth. So as God goes, the God goes toe-to-toe with pharaoh and all of these false gods of Egypt and these plagues, basically God is putting on display his might and his power. And as he leads the Israelites across the Red Sea on dry land, he takes them not through what I've been jokingly call Highway 1 along the Mediterranean Sea, no, no. He takes them through a desert where it's rugged terrain, rocky terrain, sandy terrain, brutal terrain. There's no water. There's no food. There's no nothing. That's good English, by the way, because I think that means there is something. There's nothing there. And as God takes them out through there, he's beginning to teach them some important lessons. He lets them get thirsty, then provides them with water. He lets them get hungry. He provides them with food called manna. Where we left off last week is in Numbers chapter 11. And basically, Numbers, the book of Numbers, starts right where Exodus ends. And in the book of Numbers, we find we're basically about a year and two months, give or take a few days, about a year and two months from the initial exit from Egypt. And in that year and two months, not much has changed The Israelites are still complaining. They're still frustrated. They're still whining about their situation. And they are not crying out to God. 
Now what happens in the story is as they're whining, Moses finally gets frustrated. And he says, that's it, God. I've had it with these people. Is this really your plan for me? You bring us all out here and you, I didn't give birth to these people. Like these aren't my babies. Like these are your babies. Like I'm tired of the whining. And every parent in the room went, amen, Moses, I get it. And so what we find, where we left off last week, is God does not just want you to cry. God wants you to cry out. The difference is, one leads to bitterness of heart and just whining, complaining. The other one leads you to get on your knees before the Lord. And so we're going to pick up right where that left off. But here's the little, like, fast forward today. We call this a, a, a I think we actually call it a fast forward, a communication in the world. I think I just told you, to, that's redundant. Anyway. And the point is, the point of a fast forward, a feed forward, that's what we call it, in the communication world means this. If you're paying attention to a movie, if you're paying attention to a book, they're already going to tell you what's going to happen at the end early in the story. And that's a little bit of what I want to do right now. Because at the end of the day, here's the big point. Do you believe that God can and will show up to help you in your journey through the desert? That's the point of today's message. So now, let me prove it to you. I love this quote by a guy named Mark Batterson in his book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Great little title. He says this. Most of our problems are not circumstantial. Most of our problems are perceptual. Our biggest problems can be traced back to an inadequate understanding of who God is. Our problems seem really big because our God seems really small. In fact, we reduce God to the size of our biggest problem. Guilty as charged. When I was a little boy, I don't remember much of this. I've told this story before. The older I get, I find I repeat myself more and more. Anybody else? All right. Kids will do that to you too, by the way. I'm convinced. But anyway, when I was a little boy, my parents told me this story. They said that uh, I had a little dog named Rocky, and Rocky was my best friend. And one day, the garbage truck backed up. We had a house right on the curb. My parents were always worried one day the garbage truck was going to back up on me because they drove like crazy. But one day, the garbage truck backed up and hit Rocky. And um, at night, I would gather together at the bed, and we would say our prayers. And I would pray, dear God, please bring Rocky back. And my parents had this terrible vision of a dog, half smashed, <laughs> crawling up to the door, you know, like, get out of here. Like, then you can't kill him, right? God already brought him back once. Take him out back. It's not going to help. <laughs> now, what's, <laughs> I know, you know, I stopped halfway through what was in my head. Trust me. It could have been worse. Now, the thing about little kids in prayer, as I have three little boys, is they don't know what they're not supposed to pray. Somehow, as we as adults, I don't know if we've intrinsically learned that, or if we picked it up along the way, or if the reality is we just stopped trusting God. But when I was a little boy, I didn't believe that any prayer was so big that God couldn't answer it. The size of my prayer was the size of my God. If God can bring Jesus back from the dead, why not Rocky? Now, that doesn't mean, as I'm teaching my boys to pray, that we should pray our family members back from the dead. We should pray that they meet Jesus, so therefore when they die, that's not the end of the story. But the point was, I had what the Bible calls, what Jesus calls, you know what? Childlike faith. 
The problem for most of us as it relates to today's message, and I gotta be honest, I just wanna kind of just warn you up front, we are so afraid to pray with childlike faith. We're afraid because there is a false doctrine and a false teaching today that we, we, in some circles we call it the name it, claim it. So if I pray it, then God has to give it to me because I said in Jesus' name and he owes me now because I used his name and that's not what that prayer means. However, the other side of that is some of us have been so uh, uh, disenchanted or so terrified or so ashamed or so afraid or so embarrassed or so uh, untrusting of God that we stop praying big prayers. When Paul says in Ephesians, we're actually going to talk through Ephesians this summer and fall, so I can't wait. But when Paul says in Ephesians, God can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. Do you think Paul was trying to say, so make sure you ask prayers big enough, small enough for God to get? I think what Paul's trying to do is Ephesians, he's not trying to say, why don't you go out and ask for a bigger, nicer, bigger, better car? Why don't you go ask for a better wife? No, I think what Paul was trying to say is, you think so little that your prayers reflect your thinking of God. The God who made the stars, the God who put together the universe, the God who's coordinated all of this for his glory, and you're asking him these kinds of things. He could do immeasurably more than all you could ask, and not just ask, but imagine. In other words, think bigger. But the problem is, when we don't think that God can actually answer these kinds of prayers, we pray small prayers, and then we get anxious about the outcome. I mean, come on. Most of us are stressed out and anxious because we're not sure it's going to turn out okay. Am I right? That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Well, of course they can, Jesus. And the implication is clearly no. That's why Jesus goes on to say, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. You know what you need to do? Worry about today. And if you read the rest of that passage, then don't worry because I'm gonna take care of you today and you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go to bed tonight and tomorrow we'll start over. And that's all you need. So let's go back to Numbers 11, where we kind of left off last week and pick up in the story. So as I told you, Moses goes and begins to cry out to God. The difference between Moses and the Israelites, the Israelites are just whining. They're just complaining. Moses, on the other hand, is praying. He's interceding. He's asking God to do something big. And God shows up and he says, I am going to do something big. It's going to be amazing. In fact, here's his words. Numbers chapter 11, verse 18. And say to the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining, and the Lord heard you when you cried. Oh, for some meat. We were better off in Egypt. <laughs> Maybe God didn't use that voice. I don't know. <laughs> now the Lord will give you meat, and you will have it to eat. Or you will have to eat it. That's for next week, the way he ends that. God literally says to Moses, you're going to have so much food, it's going to be coming out your ears. Literally, you're going to be gagging on it. Literally, that's what he says. You're going to have so much meat. And here's Moses' response. How? 
Literally, his response is, God, there are 600,000 fighting men. Now do the math. 600,000 fighting men would basically mean that if you count wives, children, parents, grandparents, babies, single people, put it all together, you're talking a huge number. It's probably between 1.6 and 2 million people or so at this point. And Moses is going, I got 600,000 fighting men. He literally says, if we were to kill all of our livestock, how could we, we couldn't even eat for a day, let alone a week, a month. What's Moses expressing? His view of God has gotten very small. Look at Numbers 11, though, verse 31 and 32. Now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. I'll just stop there for a minute. Anybody ever see Halford Hitchcock's movie, Birds? <laughs> Man, I don't even, I was a little kid when I saw the movie. It kind of terrified me. I kind of didn't get it. You know what went through my, movie, my mind the whole time I was watching the movie is, how do they do that? Like, you know, they don't have the Star Wars mumbo jumbo uh, special effects we have today. And then I saw a documentary. Do you know how they did it? They literally tied birds to people and told the people to run. So if you're ever watching that movie, it totally gives you a different perspective because the bird's like, help, help. (laughs) And you're watching it going, wow, those birds are really going after those people. (laughs) No, they're just trying to survive. (laughs) But that was a little bit like what was going on in Israel that day. Now, I don't know if you know this, this, when we were reading before, God told the Israelites, did you notice this? Purify yourselves. Do you know what that means? There's another kind of word for that. Consecrate yourselves. You're like, well, that didn't help any. What that means is this. So when God tells Moses, you go tell the people to purify themselves. Go tell them to consecrate. Tell them to set their lives apart. Here's what this means. I'm going to show up and I'm going to do something. And when I do, it's going to be amazing. So my people need to be ready. See, one of the principles of provision is that God is going to come through. The question is, have you prepared your heart and your life for it to happen. Again, I'm not talking about name it, claim it. God doesn't owe you anything simply because you asked and said, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm talking about a God who wants to provide and is going to provide, and he says, go get ready because I'm about to provide. There's a big difference. I mean, look at Jesus. When he is feeding the 5,000, and he takes some loaves and some fish. In fact, we're told in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 is to point us back to these very stories in the wilderness where God miraculously fed the Israelites with manna from heaven. And as John, we're told, sorry, as Jesus is preparing to feed everybody, he looks up towards heaven and he says, thank you. He hasn't done a thing yet. There's no miracle. Nothing's been happened yet. Now you could argue, well, he's he's Jesus, so he's God, so he knew what was going to come. Or he was so confident in the Father's provision that he looked up to heaven and said, hey, God, thank you because today you're going to let everybody know who I really am. Thank you because today you're going to let your glory be shown. Thank you because today these people are hungry and you're going to feed them. What would it be like to truly prepare our hearts, prepare our lives, our minds for God about to show up and answer your prayer in a significant way and to not have that doubt, that little voice in your head that says, you can't do that. There's 600,000 fighting men, God. And then God sends the quail. Look at verse 32. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. The word there is actually homers, 
not like the way we use the word today. I'll talk about homers in a minute. They spread the quail all around the camp to dry. I only have one word there. Ew. It's Hebrew. It means yuck. Oy vey. All right. Mark Batterson in The Circle Maker, to try to make this a little more applicable for you, Mark Batterson says this. Based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk was approximately 15 miles in any direction. So if you square the radius and multiply by pi, no math at Bible college, I got to trust him here. We're talking about an area that was almost 700 square miles of quail. Now, I don't know about you, that didn't mean much to me. So I went and looked. Did you know that Indianapolis is roughly 361 and a half square miles? So we're talking nearly double the size of Indianapolis in quail three feet off the ground, three feet high. That's a lot of quail. Here's what Batterson goes on to say. Can you imagine seeing that many birds flying into the camp? It was like a bird blizzard, quail mageddon. The cloud of birds was so massive that it seemed like a solar eclipse. Each Israelite gathered no less than 10 homers. 10 homers multiplied by 600,000 men equals 6 million homers at a minimum. A homer equated to roughly 200 liters. And assuming that the quail were of an average size, it rained roughly 105 million quail. God doesn't just provide in dramatic fashion. God provides in dramatic proportion. Moses could have never anticipated this answer to prayer. It was unpredictable and unprecedented. But Moses had the guts to circle the promise anyway. And when you circle the promise, you never know how God will provide. But it's always cloudy with a chance of quail. (laughs) All the parents in the room get the movie reference, or the book reference, I should say. Now, here's what's really amazing to me and to you. This should not have been any surprise. I often find when I'm meeting with um, people, and uh, we're sitting down to talk about life, And they're talking about the hard season. They're talking about doubts of faith. They're talking about questions that they have. Oftentimes, what I find is this comes from deep-seated hardness, not just a one-time moment. You know, I've been blessed. I've lived this charm Job type life, and then things got hard. It usually comes from years and years or moments and moments of tragedy, pain. And each of those moments, especially if they're not ever resolved in your head and in your heart, leads to increasing question and doubt about God. And what I will often say to people who are in that kind of situation is, I just want you to do me a favor. I just want you to go home, and for the next week, I just want you to go back to the most painful and difficult moments of your life, and I just want you to think for a moment and say, where was God working? Now, my first response I always get is, I didn't see God doing anything. Like, I want you to go back again, and I want you to remove the irony and the randomness. So I want you to go back and think, you know, I remember my neighbor came to the door and brought us food that one day, and I was so angry and hurt by whatever was going on, but I, I remember that happening and thinking, that was really sweet. I want you to go back, and even something as small as a pet, you remember how that cat, the little kitty, whatever, that skunk came into your life at just the right moment, 
And you look back and you think to yourself, man, if it weren't for that animal, I don't know how I would have made it through that season. Why could that not be the provisional hand of God? Go back and, and just remember, how many of you would say, man, if it weren't for my grandma, if it weren't for my uncle, if it weren't for fill in the blank, I don't know where I would be today. And that's the provisional hand of God. This should not have been any surprise to Moses. It shouldn't have been any surprise to the Israelites, but it was. Now, I created a list, and I'll be honest, I, I borrowed this from a website, so I only get partial credit for this. But I was curious, what were the miracles from Exodus 1 through Numbers 11? Remember, we're roughly 14 months into the Exodus story at this point, Numbers 11. So I just took those. I left out all of Genesis, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, New Testament, everything else that's ever happened. I just took that section, all of Exodus up through Numbers 11, and I just brought it down to these 18. There, there's probably others I didn't even have in here, and some of these are double. But here's the list of the things that God did in Israel. And I know that's small, so maybe hard to see, but okay, so Moses, just this one alone, a burning bush, a talking burning bush. Should you ever have doubted again? But then what about your staff turning into a snake? What about all of these miracles you did and the plagues? What about when God led you with a cloud by day, a fire by night? What about when he separated the Red Sea? You brought water from a rock. You, you made the water drinkable, manna from heaven. What about all of these things? Moses, did you really doubt that God could fix this? But the truth is, Moses did doubt. And the reality for many of us, though not all of us, is at some point you may have your Moses moment. That moment in time where you really just aren't sure anymore. And the good news is, is that your God is understanding and he's faithful. And that even when you go through that season of doubt, God will not give up on you. Just like he didn't give up on Moses. But what I want you to start seeing is not that just that God has the ability to provide. I want you to actually see that God has provided. Now we're told, I believe it's in the book of Hebrews, we're told that everything that happened in the Old Testament is actually for our example today. So you can look back at all these stories, study their lives and say, what can I learn from it? But more than that, I want you to get really good at looking back at your story and studying it. Because not only is God doing the big things, but God is doing the little things too. How do I know? Well, roughly five years ago or so, I was doing a series, a financial series, and in that series, I was, uh, I was just studying a bunch of stuff of the Bible about what God has to say about money, blow most of us away, and I stumbled upon a little passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So I want to show that to you. If, you. if you open up a Bible, if you open up your app, go ahead, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're not going to be able to look at all this, but I do want to look at some of it. And the reason I was looking at this five years ago is I was studying the story of Exodus even five years ago because I really wanted to launch a ministry here that we're actually launching in August this year. The ministry is called Reclaimed, Reclaimed. And the whole purpose of the ministry is to come alongside people who have a very painful, traumatic past or who are stuck in a sin and to kind of walk with both of those groups that's male and female separate and walk with them through a series of weeks studying the story of Exodus and learning it for ourselves and saying how does God long to free us from the pain, the bitterness, the suffering or the sin, the slavery and the addictions that are taking over our lives. 
Man, I'm so pumped for this ministry to launch in August. I would encourage you to pray about whether or not it's for you maybe to even get engaged. But as, as I was reading that, I was also prepping, as I often have to do for Sunday mornings, series on finances. And I came across Deuteronomy 8, and God connected these two dots. Take a look at what God says in Deuteronomy 8. Look at verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. When I got to that last verse there, I went, oh my. I've never even thought about it. And apparently neither did the Israelites. Okay, I have three little boys. I think they're three, six, and eight. Eh, whatever. I always get their names wrong too. Anyway, do... Middle one, get over here. Anyway, I can't keep pants in my house. They always have holes. We're constantly buying new ones. We're constantly patching the old ones. And it doesn't matter what I do. I can't keep clothes on these boys. That's another issue. But I can't seem to keep clothes that aren't falling apart on these kids. Anybody else have boys? You know what I'm talking about? Give me an amen. Help me out here. Amen. Now, what God just said to the Israelites, you know, you've been walking around this desert, and I know you got that list of stuff that I've did. Did it never dawn on you? Then in 40 years, you've never once had to change your clothing. Now, I know some of you are like, uh, ew. <laughs> yeah, but we're talking about provision. We're not talking about necessarily God giving you the best of the best of the best. That's going to come in the promised land. This is about God growing the Israelites' faith and trust in him. And what he just said is, it's never dawned on you that your shoes never wore out? Never dawned on you once that you didn't even get blisters on your feet? What God is doing to Israel as he's challenging them to look back at their life and say, just remember, I get credit for the water from the rock. I get credit for the Red Sea. I get credit for the cloud by day and the fire by night. I'm not getting any credit for the washing machine that didn't break that was way past due. I'm not getting any credit for the car that keeps running when you're like, I don't know how this thing is still going. I'm not getting any credit for the fact that you wrote the gift, that tithe check to the church. I was just talking to a guy backstage about this. You wrote the tithe check to the church. It didn't make any sense, but God miraculously gave you more money. It doesn't always make sense, does it? But see, God is a provisional God. He has every intention to care for you. He takes personal responsibility to meet your needs. He, don't miss this, loves you. That's why Jesus goes on in that passage I referred to earlier, Matthew chapter 6, verse 28. Jesus says, and why worry about, worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Notice that certainly. Well, if he gets around, he's God, you know, he's kind of busy. 
Jesus is saying you can have absolute confidence. The problem isn't that God won't show up. The problem is this. Why do you have so little faith? And Jesus asks this question of a lot of different people. The disciples, it looks like everything is going under on the boat. Where's your faith? To a man who desperately, desperately wants his son to be free from this demon that's tormenting him. Where's your faith? Interestingly, the response is, help me in my unbelief. I think sometimes that's the prayer we need to pray to God. I want to have childlike faith. I want to believe that you can bring Rocky back from the dead. I want to believe that you could do immeasurably more than all I ask or imagine. But God, right now, what I need is not a prayer for that thing. What I need right now is a prayer for you to increase my faith. Help me to see you for the big God that you really are. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter six and he says this, verse 31 So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, and what will we drink, and what will we wear? (laughs) These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows most of your needs. Now, he knows all of them. So what do we do? Verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you want. That's how we want it to read, isn't it? You had the same outfit 40 years, but you had clothes. Sometimes we have to align our desire for God to act with God's decision to act See, our prayer, as Jesus taught us, is this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, give us today our daily bread. God, give us what we need to survive today. We'll trust you today. We'll start over tomorrow. What's amazing to me, and I don't want you to miss this, is how often God doesn't just meet the daily need, but he meets the big prayer also. So many of you know that um, uh, a couple years ago, I just was going through a lot of junk. There was junk going on at the church. There was junk going on in my home. There was junk going on with my mom and her cancer. There was just junk everywhere. Didn't matter where I turned, there was junk, junk, junk. It was a junky time of my life. I was in a desert. And on the days that were my absolute hardest, when I was most sad, you might use the word depressed, down, what amazed me, looking back, is how God showed up I even told my wife at one point, it amazes me, within an hour of these thoughts and feelings, within an hour, God keeps sending somebody my way to encourage me. And it's supernatural. I could go three days in a row without a a, a sad, depressed thought at all about what God was doing and where he was, and then as soon as I would have it, within an hour, I'd get an email from one of you out of nowhere, a gift card. I even shook a hand of somebody this morning and said, I just want to say thank you. You've been a constant encouragement to me. They had no idea it would come within an hour. One day, I was just overwhelmed. I was like, I just got to get out of the office. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I went. I was like, I'm just going to go get a Starbucks because I think Jesus will meet me there. And I went, <laughs> I went to the one at Kroger. And I walk into the Kroger, and there's someone shopping. And they said, hey, I've always wanted to tell you this. 
I think it's ironic that we run into each other here, but I just need to let you know how much your ministry has meant to me. It's changed my life and my family, and I thought I could have stayed in my office and drank coffee from a Keurig. <laughs> One day in the middle of that season, I don't have time to tell you the details, through a crazy multiple changes in my schedule, I decided to swing by Chick-fil-A. When I got in there, I ran into a man who'd been coming to Kingsway, but he'd recently moved an hour away. I knew about his story before he moved, and it was terrible, painful. He was fighting to save his marriage, and that day, his entire schedule changed at the very last minute to put him in Avon, and for some reason, he decided to come to Chick-fil-A at the exact same minute I was there where he told me that he'd been suicidal. And as I encouraged my brother again and prayed with him right there in Chick-fil-A, he thanked me yet again for saving his life. And God met both of us that day. Now see, those were the little things. The, your clothes didn't wear out. Your shoes didn't get blisters moments. And there's been so many there's been, there were families at Kingsway who, who sent uh, an entire bag of soccer balls, of volleyballs with me to go to Peru and I got to go down there and take all these balls to these uh, kids at this orphanage and give them to my friend and his wife who were missionaries. There were a couple families here who gave us money and just said, we don't care how you use it, we trust you. Just bless the socks off of people down there. And we went down there and we bought them meals and we blessed people and we just, just said, hey, whatever you need while we're here. We tried to talk them into taking a vacation in the mountains, but they didn't want to do that. And so we just said, hey, we're going to bless you. There's no worries while you're here. We're just here to spoil you. Whatever that means, we're here to encourage you. And to hear my friend's story of how beat down and worn out life and ministry had been for him and that's just a small glimpse of a friend showing up with just like blessing it was just silly he didn't need it he was going to eat but God cared about the little things too and I can't wait to go back with some of you to that orphanage probably next spring and just see the work that God's doing in everybody's lives down there but see here's what's amazing not only was God answering the little prayers every moment of every day, showing up and saying, I'm here and I care. But I gotta tell you, where we are today, two years after so much of that pain, we are in a better place than we have been maybe in the entire seven years since I've been here. There is so much unity between our church and school, more than I've seen in seven years. Have you seen our website? Have you seen the wall down there that the school's painting? Just this past week, some of the ministers gathered with some of the, the staff from the school, and we answered some really hard questions that the middle school kids were asking. Did you see the recent walk and run event that happened and the money that was raised from that, the unity between the two? I mean, I sit here today going, God, here you were not only caring for me every single day, but this immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. God, you were answering that one too. And I say this because God wants to blow your socks off. But are you opening your mouth and your heart to the provision of God? It may not come the way you think. <laughs> it rarely does. It may not come just when you think it should. Hardly ever. But your God is faithful and true. Go back to Deuteronomy 8 with me. Look at verse 6. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water. 
with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and of honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now, up to this point, and I'm not an expert on all things Old Testament, but if I'm not mistaken, the two most common words to describe the Old Testament up to this point is what? It's a land flowing with milk and bunnies. Exactly. And I never understood, actually says milk and honey, why that's a big deal. Like, okay, so what, like the river's made of milk? How's that good? And honey? Like, I could get stung, God. Where's the blessing here? What those two things meant was God was saying to the Israelites, just giving them a glimpse. See, right now, you literally break your back every day as slaves producing for Egypt. When you show up into this land, it's just going to flow. The goodness is going to flow. Then we get to this passage, Deuteronomy 8, and God, through Moses, goes into descriptive detail. We are fast-forwarded. We are basically 40 years in advance. They've gone through the discipline season. They're on the brink of crossing over. Moses cannot go with them. He has to stop. Joshua takes him in. And Moses is pronouncing to the Israelites, when you get in there, and he literally goes through basically every major category, and he tells them the finest things in their culture. I realize this may not click with you the way it clicked with them. There's no mention of air conditioning or anything like that. But in that day, this was the best of the best of the best. It's going to be pomegranates. It's going to be this. It's going to be this. Oh, it's going to be glorious. See, God is not just going to take care of you with manna and meet your daily need through encouragement and whatever it is. He will do that. But God intends to blow you away with the way he's going to care for you. As I find myself often praying with people who are going through a hard season, God, I just pray you would make your presence known in such a way that on the other side of this, it'll be so obvious it was you. That it wasn't doctors. That it wasn't a bank. It wasn't a CEO. It wasn't an accident. It'll be so clear it was your hand that we will have no other option but to sit back and go, (laughs) he did it again. That's what he does. I'll close out with this passage. Deuteronomy 8. I don't want you to miss this because when you come into your promised land, you need this piece of wisdom, verse 11. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, And when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with his poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors 
with an oath. Many of us falsely believe that we have what we have because our parents worked hard or we worked hard, we're smart, we're better than everybody else. The Bible from beginning to end makes consistently clear we are all blessed by God for one reason, to bring him glory. And the way that we most bring him glory is by becoming a blessing to others. Might it just be that God has positioned those of you on a mountaintop to raise up someone in a valley? If you, if right now a name is coming to mind, the Holy Spirit's convicting you about a family member, a friend, a life group member, somebody in this church, somebody you know, you're like, man, might it just be that God's calling you to self-sacrifice, to put off something that you want or desire in order to help lift up and encourage someone else so that when they get to the mountaintop, they might go, praise God for you. God, I remember how you sent that family. I remember how you sent that person, that meal, that thing. It was so perfectly timed. God, it couldn't have been anything other than you. And if today you hear God's voice, please do not harden your heart. Open yourself up to what God might do with you. I want to close with this question. And this is the hardest part of it all. What is the one step of faith that you need to take today to show that you trust God? What is the one step of faith you need to take today to show you trust God? For some of you, it might be that step of salvation, of saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go all in with you, Jesus. I'm gonna be baptized. For some of you, it's finally opening your mouth and stop trying to fix it on your own, crying out to God to fix it, and then let him fix it however he wants. Maybe it's confessing a sin that you've been hiding. Maybe it's finally saying you're sorry to somebody that you've hardened your heart and won't apologize for. Maybe it's forgiving somebody who sought your forgiveness and you're like, no, I can't let this go. The bitterness has become my solitude. And here we stand with a God saying, I will take care of you all the way through to the promised land. What is the thing you need to do? And here it is. Don't go small. I don't know if there's any euchre players in the room, but we have a phrase when we play euchre. Go big or go home. You're talking about the God of the universe. Don't bring him small stuff and offend him. If your prayers could be answered without him, go big or go home. We're going to go right into communion now. And this is the perfect opportunity for you to lay those prayers out before your heavenly father. Communion servers, go ahead. And I'm just going to start a prayer. I'm not even going to say amen, which might be weird for some of you. I'm just going to walk off the stage and you pick right up where I left off and start communing and conversing with your father in heaven. God. We are tempted at every turn to view you through our little brains. God, we're so afraid to ask really big things from you because, number one, we're afraid you're going to say yes, and number two, we're afraid how you're going to answer it. And number three, God, what if you don't? 
So Father, we continue to not pray or pray small. That way we could control, or at least in our minds, we could control the outcomes. But God, I pray right here, right now, would you put to death our longing for control? Open up our hearts and our mouths. God, right now, some people in this room just need to spend this communion time thanking you for your provision. You've been so good, so faithful for so long. And God, I pray right now for those whose hearts are hard and they can't see you. God, would your Holy Spirit just come rushing in like a strong wind and reveal, God, all the things you've done. May this sermon convict and encourage, God. And Lord, I pray for all of us right now that we would be a people who see your blessing, believe in your blessing, and take part in the blessing of others.